And this this is a little more expansive, or it will end up being, you know, two, three, four, or five kind of education hours together, I would imagine. I don't really know the whole scope of it, because it came out of a thought that was a fairly succinct and simple thought as, as regarding idolatry. And then as I began reading into Scripture and thinking about it a little more, I thought, oh, there's, there's just a lot more here that we can order and work on and think through. Part of it is this. What do you think of when you think of idolatry? What comes to mind? Like, what's, what are the things that, you know, pop right, right away into your head? Little statues. <laughs> sure, right. Okay. Little graven images. Ten Commandments. You got Ten Commandments. Mariolatry. Okay. So, Mariolatry. Worshipping anything other than one true God. Probably the broadest or most broad. Uh, so, that's maybe one half of it. Is worshiping anything or anybody, anything uh, other than the true and the living God. Yeah. Okay, Wall Street, uh, money. So we have we have idols that we think of. I think most readily we think of statuary, right? We think of, of graven images or carved images, and think, okay, well that's you know people who would bow down to worship. Uh, carved images or, or, or even molten images, like you think of you know, metal and something being formed and so on. That would be just obvious, high-handed idolatry. And then the last one that Bill mentioned, Wall Street. Um, well, it's, it's an edifice and it's an institution, but more, mostly it, it uh, is emblematic of our money, your money. Right? That's probably more, more the thing is mammon there at that point. Um, but we can have an, an idea... As an idol, we can have a relationship as an idol. We can have idols that really are carved images, uh, and so on. And that's so. There's a whole range of them. When we look at the scripture, typically, typically what we're seeing is other gods and the statuary or the physical representation, the images of those gods, and people bowing down to worship them or serve them or bring them food or whatever else goes on in the worship of of these other gods. Um, and we think of that maybe <coughs> really in terms of kind of primitive religiosity, if that's the right kind of phraseology for it, right? That, that in the ancient world, this is kind of how they did things, but we've kind of grown up now in, in, into the modern times, which isn't untrue. I think that's, that there's, there's some truth to that. Paul talks about a couple different places, the elemental principles of the world that Christ came to move the world past. And I think that kind of idolatry, simply bowing down to statuary and stuff, kind of fits into that ancient mindset of how God, the gods are worshipped. And not only has Judaism come through that, but Christianity has destroyed it in history. To the point of this, I'll just make this as a passing comment, though I'd like to develop it later. For the first quarter of Christian history, it was not uncommon for Christians to have to walk by temples and altars and sacrifices to all sorts of gods to get to where they were going. Right? You don't walk down the street here and see a temple to Jupiter and, and, and sacrifices going on and bird offerings being, it's just, that's not, or, or, or feasts and festivals around other gods. We don't see it. Why don't we see it? Christ has knocked down those idols by his church. Right? That's, uh, up until in the 500s, the Roman Empire encompassed all kinds of worship with all kinds of gods in all kinds of ways. And then when it became Christian, and maybe so, or at least became um, Christian, well, so Constantine made Christianity illegal within, within Rome, but it took many generations for Christianity to be the centerpiece, the center religious piece of, of Roman identity. And when that happens, all the other gods got to get shut down. All the other temples need to be shut down. 
And that's kind of how things go. So that's, we're on this side of that. Right? We're on this side of that purging of, in Western culture in particular, uh, outright, high-handed, idolatrous worship of other gods. We don't really see it anymore. Right? There's still, within our kind of pluralistic society of different religions doing different things, you bet. You can still walk by the Kingdom Hall. You can still walk by the uh, uh, Mormon stake and whatever else. And These are false gods and, and idolaters, but not in the same smoky, bloody social sense that the early church, the early centuries of the church had to deal with. Um, so we kind of think of it, uh, idolatry, as this way that the ancients used to do things, but we don't do it that way anymore, although if we're attuned to what the Bible says, particularly in the New Testament, so, oh, well, idolatry really is an issue of the heart. It really is an issue of where your heart's at and, and where your priorities are and, and whom you serve, right? And you can do that in a very physical way of bowing down to a, a statue and and connecting with the God that way, but we don't really have that as a temptation so much anymore. Right, so I want to kind of get a whole, that, that was a simple thought that kind of got me onto this track of idolatry, and then as, again, as I read the scripture and started dealing with it, I'm like, oh, there's a lot more here that I think we can pull together and have a better sense, not only of historically idolatry, but even when it comes to our own time and our own hearts, where idolatry is and how that works. Um, because the last time you guys bowed down to like a statue of uh, Zeus was when? Like, never, right? Um, but the last time you were covetous was like 10 minutes ago, right? Or maybe three minutes ago, or maybe right now. Um, but that's, and so covetousness is idolatry. We want to make the connection between these things and see, kind of see how the whole thing works, and, and historically how these things work as well, because, again, we're, we were just having this eschatological conversation just before, um, before the service or the education hour started, and my, my question back for a question was, when's the last time you've seen a Christian devoured by a lion in the Colosseum for being a Christian? Well, you haven't, right? That doesn't really happen in our world now, but it does happen in other parts of the world and things like that. There's persecution like that. But we can move forward out of things and still have to deal with the, the sticky problems that are inv- embedded in them, right? And the persecution is one of them, where in certain ways we can kind of step out of some very bloody and terrible persecution as Christians, but that doesn't mean it's done. It doesn't mean that the whole idea of persecution isn't there. We just have to deal with it differently and understand in our context what that means, which is different, not entirely different, but different from the way the early Christians, say, had to deal with the persecution of the Jews and of Rome, the official persecution and so on. So persecution doesn't always look the same, though there are similar components of it. And idolatry doesn't always look the same, though there are similar components of it as well. That's kind of what I want to grab onto. I had a question over here, I thought. When have you seen idol worship and thinking of the uh, Sherpas on Mount Everest or their little fur flags? I mean, that's a big totally. thing for them, apparently, or obviously. And, and it could, we could, I think we could very sadly put it right into the Christian church and say, oh, we have plenty of idolatry in the Christian church. Statuary, Mariolatry, all that kind of stuff. There's, so there are ways to kind of look at this and say, well, it's not quite as far away as maybe you think, Tim. Um, but in other ways, it is You've been pushed far away. So trying to consider some of that. Um, the pagan stuff, but also the Christian stuff, and how Christians have um, succumbed to this temptation, just like the Jews did for generation after generation after generation after generation, fighting this idolatry. Um, so that's the kind of path I'm looking to go on. So let's get at least a definition here, uh, right up top, number one. Idolatry. I remember bringing a friend to church, a non-Christian friend, and... Um, I think Tim Hart had made a comment about idolatry, and my friend said, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And I think, I think what he meant, because we were talking about the idolatry relationship in the family, or you know, that kind of thing. He's like, what do you, because I think all he had in mind 
was bowing down to statues. If you're not bowing down to a statue of something, then that's not really idolatry. But, of course, he doesn't see the broader meanings of it. But that's, that, is, that is literally what the word means. Okay, so I wrote, well, the first of all, the hashtag there, the mark there, the Eidolon plus Latria is the, the worship. Latria is a, a, a bowing down, a service to. Not, there's, there's another word in Greek for, for bowing down. That's not it. This is more like a rendering service or rendering worship to an Eidolon or a form, a shape. Okay, something, something that, uh, a shape or a form that you can see or touch, and that sort of thing, right? So bowing down, giving your worship or your service to um, an, uh, an image of, of some variety or other, particularly a shape or a form. Ed had mentioned that idolatry is worship of anything other than the true and living God. That's very true. And oftentimes, um, when people, especially historically, have worshipped other gods than the true and living God, they'll have some sort of form, some image that they're working through to not only, I guess, themselves be thinking about that God, but to interact with that God through that physical means. Now, the, the scripture writers, as we'll see, make fun of idolaters over and over again, saying, hey, with half a piece of wood, you cook your dinner. With the other half a piece of wood, you wither yourself a, a god and bow down to it. Then how stupid is all that? Okay, well, for sure, right? However, the worshiper, the idolatrous worshiper, wasn't thinking that's what he was doing. Right? He's thinking, I have interaction with this god and his power through this means. In a kind of similar way that we have interaction with the body and blood of Christ through the means of bread and wine. Right? It's, it's not exactly easy. You don't just do the math and say, okay, it works. But no, Christ feeds us himself. He gives us himself through the means of this image, really, right? This tactile image, this thing we can hold and even chew and so on, uh, and swallow. It says that's an image that God wants us to have in worship. But there are many other images he does not want us to have. And he doesn't want us to be creative in how we're doing it. So he's given us certain images and ways to access him and his power that are kind of similar to the way uh, idolaters would worship false gods and think that they are receiving from the God through that statue or whatever else they're, they're operating through. So you have the worship of false gods, with or without an image, that would be idolatry, but also the worship of the true and living God via images that he has not given us to use. Okay, that would also be idolatry. And that's important in the scriptures. It's not just the worship of false gods. It's also the worship of the true and living God falsely. Right? False worship of the true and living God, particularly through graven images and so on. Yep, that's right. Is there any history on when actual idolatry started? I mean, the caveman, or when did they first realize that they had to have some obedience to the living God that we know? Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, I mean, I'm not sure how to, even which kind of way to get at it, but where does idolatry start, right? Um, And it's got to start with the sons of Adam, right? I mean, it's got to start somewhere where God, who is invisible, is interacting with us, and we're quite visible and physical, and, and, and there's, there's stuff that way we want. Now, obviously, God had, from the very beginning, uh, prescribed um, sacrifices and so on that he's going to receive. So there's that physical component of worship that's already built in there. Uh, but it seems like it's within men's heart. We want something more. We want more images. We want more access. And, and I think as we, as we deal with them, especially dealing with false gods and demonic powers, there's real power there. There's real power in idolatry, right? There's real power in Satan and in his forces. And I think that um, particularly occult practices try to draw on that, right? This idolatrous ancient practice drawing on that power. Um, as moderns, we think, oh, that's just a big joke, right? That's nothing. But it's not nothing. 
right? Spiritual powers are real, and dark spiritual powers are real. And God says, stay away from them. And don't, don't copy them as you worship me, right? That's something that you get from Israel all the time. Don't look around at the other nations and see how they worship their gods and do the same thing for me. I don't want it, right? I want you to worship how I tell you to, which is what the second commandment is all about. The second commandment is all about how God is worshipped. Worshipping the true living God, to be sure, but worshipping him faithfully. How he wants to be worshipped and not making it up or, do, or doing something else. Um, so that's kind of right where we're going with it. So I don't know how to answer your question other than it's in the fallen heart of man to want more than what God has given. We want to make it up. So it was Adam and, and God. When God finished up doing this business, making everything where it is, and uh, he made this man, and the man realized the power of God and to obey him was wise. I guess, but then maybe, and maybe we were saying then to switch that around, like Eve's looking at the fruit that God said, don't do this. And she's like, hmm, that stuff looks pretty good, kind of tasty. Hey, it make me wise too. But there's this kind of like, I want stuff, right? I want powers and things, and I'm going to figure out how to get them. God says, I'll give you powers and things, but you're going to get them my way in my time. And, and it's almost like the temptations of Jesus, right? He's got all the stuff. Satan says, I'll do it for you. He says, I'm going to get all that, but I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it God's way that we'd already agreed on. So it's something like that. It's something that that's the dimension I think. There, you know, the, the character of idolatry is that seeking something for ourselves in a way that God has not prescribed that we should do it. Right? Uh, particularly sp- spiritual power and things like that. Let's see a hand. Yes. Is, is there a distinction between covetousness and you mentioned it earlier and idolatry or, or any other of the, of the sins of the flesh? Does it all come down to idolatry of some sort? I mean, if you're going to, if you're speculating or if you're reading your horoscope or whatever you're doing, uh, those things all fall within uh, idolatry. I kind of think so. I think um, I kind of. The question is, you know, if you took any sin or all sins, does it really all come down to idolatry? And I think the answer is yes, um, all, all the way from Eve and Adam, right? Um, and whether it's idolizing themselves their own self-actualization, or, you know, whatever modern terminology you want to put on it, uh, but disobeying God, not doing what God said to do and doing it his way. does come down to covetousness on the one hand and idolatry on the other, which are wrapped around and are, are the same thing, right, which Paul identifies as the same thing. And I think we can see the Tenth Commandment and the First Commandment are bookends of the entire Decalogue, right, uh, and they hang together, too. So that's a good, good observation. Um, so quickly, I want to look at number two. And this is it's really interesting um, how how widespread idolatry, I mean, the, in, in the kind of the, the base sense of bowing down to statues um, and, and seeking the power and connection with the gods in, in, the, in, in those statues and in that worship, uh, how, how widely spread that is through the world, the ancient Near East. So we talk about the ancient Near East, or A-N-E, is how it's usually abbreviated in scholarship. We're talking about the world that's kind of to the east of well, to the east of Greece, we'll put it that way. Um, so Turkey to the north, and then coming down through the, what they call the Levant. I'm doing it on my side, you're doing yours. So Turkey coming down through the Levant, which is like Syria and Israel, and then into Egypt as well. And if you keep going east, uh, basically into Mesopotamia, right? You, you go down the rivers, and, and after that, it's, it's the Far East, and we're not, we're not thinking about that quite as much. So the ancient Near East is that kind of large chunk of land that in, in, includes a lot of countries today. Right, um, so that's when we talk about the ancient Near East. That's what, so the ancient Near East is the context in which Israel develops, in which Israel grows, in which God reveals himself and calls the nations out of this 
big mess and swath of all sorts of, um, you know, different countries, different peoples, all of them having their own gods, even pantheons, like many gods and so on. That's, there's, there's, you know, this, uh, with the, uh, the monotheism we take for granted is something that Israel did not take for granted, right? They had Yahweh, their God, and they knew he was the true and the living God, but they're in the midst of all sorts of other gods, right? Um, that people took very seriously or didn't, right? There's a whole range of people in that as well. Anyway, so the ancient Near East is, uh, they're not, the peoples from Babylon, especially, and wherever else, aren't thinking of their idols. And by the way, their idols typically aren't little guys. Right? Idols are life-size idols, or much bigger, um, especially if you're going to temples and things like that. Uh, part, part of the grandeur of going to the temple of whoever, say, Diana in Ephesus, uh, being a, a, an important one, um, is, the, is the great glory of that image, how, how big that statue is, how impressive it is, and things like that, which is um, anyway, part of the amusement, I guess, of um, the Roman general Pompey in 63 B.C. when he comes and finally conquers Jerusalem. He's going to walk in and see what this Yahweh God looks like. It's all empty, right? I mean, there's the... There's the there's uh, you know, the, the stuff in there, but there's no image of, of, of God. And the, the Roman, you know, he's like, what, what is the deal here? How would someone not have an image of God? But that's actually a, a distinctive point about Israel. In the midst of all this mess in the ancient Near East that they've looked around every direction and see, they're pretty much the only group of folks that says, we don't have images of God. And that's a bad idea. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't worship God that way. Um, so that makes them distinctive, and that's something that I think moves them ahead a little bit in the historical development of things, where they're kind of leading the charge into something that the Christians definitely pick up and keep moving forward. And uh, so we'll see that as a, a societal move forward here out of this reality that the, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, that the uh, Israel doesn't have images of God and disparages images of God even in worship and thinks all those images are just, you know, this, the whittled carved stuff is just madness. Right? They're just it's just wood. It's just stone, right, and so on. Uh, where the whole world around is like, no, it's not like that. This is how we meet God. This is how the power of the gods and the influence of the gods comes to us is through the statuary, through these graven images. The last part of number two there. Patriotism, especially in times of war. Um, so if your country is at war against some other country out there, <clears throat> and you're not doing too well against another country, well, it might be because, in fact, it's probably because we've angered the gods. Right? And we've angered our gods. And so the people who aren't coming to worship the gods correctly or despising that, well, they're, they end up becoming the whipping boys for the whole community who's losing in war. Right? Because in, in the early Christians had to deal with this all the time. Being an international body all over the place, they said, well, we don't worship the gods. We're not going to worship the emperor. We're not going to worship and so on. And then they become a target for great ire uh, from... Uh, any number of nationalities who are, think that you're causing the problem here. The book, The City of God, Augustine wrote because of that very accusation. Right? Rome's falling apart. And the reason is because these Christians have stopped worshipping the Roman gods. And the Roman gods are angry with us. It's the Christians' fault. Right? We all sit there and chuckle. <laughs> How silly. It's like a comic strip. But that's the life of Christians in the first centuries of the church. That's how people were thinking. Right? They're, they're thinking in terms of the reality of these gods the importance of their worship and maintaining their worship so they don't get mad, and so they give us good stuff. Right? So there's that kind of covetousness that you can see kind of built into idolatrous worship anyway. Um, we worship the gods because we don't want 
evil stuff, bad stuff to happen, and we kind of want their power and good stuff to happen too. So you can see that kind of covetous desire right at the heart of worship, idolatrous worship. Where Christian worship, we definitely benefit from worshiping the Lord. Right? Uh, but the primary goal is to glorify the Lord, to honor the Lord, to lift Him up, His name. Not so that bad things don't happen to us, or so we can get some power, though we don't want bad things to happen to us, so we would like some power, God thanks. Um, but the primary focus is the glory of God, lifting up the name of the Lord, which is different from idolatrous worship. I'll do number three pretty quickly, and then we'll, we'll look at those texts and, and pause for a question before that. So Israel is distinct in officially opposing images and idols among the, all the nations of the ancient Near East. It's very common that they would promote images in worship. Now, images had to be just right. Just like in the Eastern Orthodox um, tradition, when you, I think they say write. When you write an icon, you don't draw an icon, uh, you write it. You familiar with iconography in the Eastern Church? It's all kind of flat, almost two-dimensional looking. and um, They have to be done just right. There's a lot of parameters around the way those come together and how they're supposed to look. You don't just do them, right? And the same thing goes with ancient idolatry, too. You don't just make an idol. There are parameters around the way this thing's supposed to go and how it's shaped and, and all sorts of things like that. How it's produced, where it's produced, what kind of magic they use, when they produced it, so that it's actually a bona fide like, representative of the God and so on. So there's a lot of that, it's, and a lot of it's official, right? It's, it's not just kind of la-di-da social stuff. It's, no, this is the form, this is how we do things, and if you're not doing it right, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, and if you're not doing it at all, like Christians, you're going to be in even bigger trouble. Uh, so, anyway, there's, uh, Israel is distinct from, in its opposition to idols and images and worship, uh, and that's important. That's an important thing for us to realize. Because in a lot of ways we look and say, well, Israel's just, in a lot of ways, like the countries around it. You know, we say the, the covenant structure that God uses with Israel. We can find covenants like this all over the place in ancient Near East. So that's not particularly distinctive, though sometimes there are distinctive parts of that. Right? So in, in certain ways, Israel's very similar to the nations around it. But sometimes it's not. And in this case, it's very much not. Where God, from the beginning, has said, you won't worship me this way even though all the nations around you worship their gods this way. Okay, so that's a distinctive reality. Look at Exodus chapter 20 while you're turning there. Um, are there any questions? I'm yes. assuming in the weeks following we'll talk about parallels today. For sure. Yeah, so this is what I say. Just trying to like, clear some ground here. Um, to, yeah, and, and I'm, not, I'm not opposed to talking about connections to today all the way through. Um, which kind of sometimes helps solidify it as you go anyway. So if you have one, do it, go ahead. Uh, but I did want, I want to start anyway with at least the command here in the second commandment and, and, and think about it a little bit and then turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4 and see the biblical rationale given. Because, again, God doesn't really give a rationale here in the commandment. He just gives the commandment. So Exodus chapter 20. <coughs> so the first commandment, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me or in my face. Um, this, who is God, the true and the living God, don't worship anything else. Okay, that's the, the, so the, the, oh, the target, the subject of our, or I guess object of our worship must be the true and the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the first commandment. The second commandment is about how to worship the true and the living God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, which is to say any image of anything in creation, any created thing. You're not to make an image of it. Um, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, 
For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, that is, thousands of generations, of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so there's this kind of promise built in there and so on, uh, and threat as well. But you should not make for yourself any carved image. Okay, that's, uh, that's the, you know, the older English was graven image. But the idea is you have wood or stone and you're, you know, you're, you're whittling it down and you're hacking it down to the right form and, and uh, in, order to, or in order to bow down to it or serve it, to worship it, right? To, to, um, and again, this isn't, it's, it's in the context already of the first commandment. We're not talking about how not to worship false gods. We're talking about how not to worship the true God, right? That's the point. Uh, and God says, I don't want your carved images. I don't want you worshiping me through any image of anything that you've ever seen or know. God being invisible is not visible. And all the things that are visible that we see aren't like God. And God says, I don't want those images. I don't want that in your mind. I don't want that you thinking you're coming to me, connecting with me through an, through an image or an idol or a, you know, a graven statue, uh, because it doesn't work that way. That's not how God will be approached. So I think that's clear. It's just from the commandment. Wham! You're not doing it this way. Which is, again, a stark contrast to the nations around Israel. Going, well, that's what they do. This is how they worship. This is stock and trade, right, for how divinities are approached. But Yahweh says, not me. Not like that. So any any thoughts or questions just on that as far as a move from the commandment and then into Deuteronomy 4 here in a second for the rationale? All right. Deuteronomy 4 it is then. So, again, a lot of God's commandments don't give a rationale. He's not saying, well, here here are the reasons why I don't want you to do this. Or, you know, giving some kind of case for it. That's not usually what goes on. But there's a little bit of that here in Deuteronomy chapter 4 with this specifically. I'll read the larger section. Starting at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Talking about the Exodus and the four years and all that, of course. The signs, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, remember Horeb because Elijah's going there later, um, when you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, Yahweh said to me, Gather the people to me so that I may, so, I'm having a hard time, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days of all their days, and live on the, they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So, okay, so God calls them together that they may hear his voice, hear to obey, and teach their children to obey. Okay, that should be very, very familiar for anyone who's read the Bible much. Right? Hear the words of God, and obey you and your children. So far, no problem. And when you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain at Horeb, while the mountain burned with fire uh, to the heart... Uh, uh, with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Now we're talking about the giving of the Ten Commandments and all that's going on there. Any images there? Yeah, all kind of stuff. Your fire and gloom and darkness and clouds. Okay, But those aren't God. right? But this, these are the manifestations on the mountain that are going on when, God's, when God has uh, Moses up there beforehand, when God brings Moses up so, uh, to receive the, the Ten Commandments. Verse 12. Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. 
And he, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the ten words, the ten commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over uh, to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by, corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the hosts of heaven. You be drawn away to bow down to them and serve them. Things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. And Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron, iron furnace of Egypt to be a people of his, own inherit, of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, that Yahweh was angry with me because of you, and he, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter into the good land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of the good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant that Yahweh your God, uh, which he made with you, and, made, uh, and make a carved image or form anything that Yahweh your God has, uh, has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, that almost sounds a bit like commentary on the second commandment as far as pulling that together and, and, and kind of detailing out some of that. But you can see here the, the God's redemptive action at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb, was such that there, was, there were signs, right? There's fire and smoke and clouds and all this stuff, this kind of scary stuff that has Israel definitely scared down there at the foot of the mountain saying, we're not going to even touch the mountain, we're not going up it. Moses, you go for it. Um, you know, so they're, they're, it makes them scared, but they saw no form of God. There was no image of God. He didn't reveal himself with an image. He didn't reveal himself in form. He did reveal himself with a voice. He spoke. Okay? And he spoke, I guess, to the children of Israel. Also spoke directly to Moses. And we have the written commandments there as well. Those are ways in which God is communicating himself. Not through images. Not through something seen. But by something heard. Okay? That's important. And that's important through the whole Bible. That very idea that we're to hear God... Not so much to look for him and see him, but to listen for his word. Now, what we have then in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, is God in the flesh. The very God who speaks right here in our midst, right, as a man. And that's a, that's a tremendous upheaval and change in, in the life of God's people, because all the time before that, you hear God. There are, we call theophanies, or God showing himself and kind of like showing up as a person or three people and things like that, but and vanishing after that. Um, but the incarnation is, is God's, anyway, the image in man of God. The completion of this idea that, that man's made the image of God. And here is God-man pulled together. So I'm, I'm getting kind of ahead of myself on that one. Um, the point here, though, is the rationale given for Israel of not having images of God and not worshiping God through images is that God has never given them an image. He's given them words. He's, he's revealed himself Verbally, not visually. Any any thoughts or questions on that? What about the burning bush? Good. So there are signs. Yeah, good. Good question. So Adoray says, what about the burning bush? Um, so that's a sign, something God's doing, but it's not a form of God. 
That's not God. Here's, here's what God looks like, or here's, how, here's, the, here's the image you should copy and worship through it. Right? Because we could, we could make an image of a burning bush. I mean, the, the Western Reformed seminaries, um, you know, its emblem is a burning bush with some words around it. That, that's fine. So long as we're not bowing down to worship it and say, this is the image through which we're going to worship Yahweh, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't worship that way. Though, in that burning bush, he speaks. Take off your shoes over there, you know. So, uh, how he meets people sometimes that way is very direct and, and, uh, and does use imagery, but not an image of God himself. But imagery that God is, you know, so even to the point of, of, of men, right? Men walking in people, it's like, that's Yahweh, right? Yahweh's come and visit us, and these three men say, um, but that's a created medium through which God's communicating himself, not his own form. And the argument here in Deuteronomy is God expressly didn't show you a form, but he did speak to you, and that's the point. So you're, you're not going to worship God through forms and images, but you are going to listen to God to obey, and you're going to teach your children to listen to God to obey. Okay. Um, the same thing we find all the way in the book of Revelation, where uh, so often Jesus is heard and then seen. Heard and then seen. Heard and then seen. Okay, that's a, that's a, it seems like it's a, a frequent reality in the scriptures. We hear God, and then once we've heard him, we'll see him. And that's, of course, the grand hope of the Christian life, is to see God. Right? The, the, the beatific vision is the blessed vision. Right? That's what we're looking forward to, is to behold God... Not just to hear him and have a spirit in, in, our, you know, in, our, in our heart and in our lives, but to behold God. Right? A fuller interaction with God and get to know him more. Right? So that's the beatific vision. And uh, so faith and vision are uh, opposed at that point. Faith will eventually encompass vision. We won't need faith. Yeah. So what Isaiah says he saw the Lord seated on the Right. Sure, or just an image that God made. I don't know. And there's another one, too, with Moses, um, uh, you know, God passing by him, see the hindquarters and that kind of stuff. It's like, that's weird, you know. Um, it's, hard, it's hard kind of to know what exactly to make of that. Um, but I think what we can say is whatever these kind of like, I don't know if incidental is the right word, but uh, not central, these secondary ways that maybe God has said, he says, listen, I haven't given you images. Don't look for them. Don't use them. Listen to my word. Is, is really the mainstay of the marching order for God's people, even if there are kind of these exceptions here and there. Um, if, they are, if they really are exceptions, or if they're just a different way God's doing something. Uh, but there are a number of those that make you scratch your head anyway, and, and it would be worth looking up to think through how they fit into this general rationale of, of the way God wants to communicate himself to us, and the way he wants to be worshipped by us. Right? Particularly without images, except the images that he said to use. Bread and wine being one of them. Right, uh, and water being another. He wants worship in, in those images, but he's told us that. So uh, we're not free to create beyond that. And that really is the, the heart of the regulative principle of worship that's the Presbyterian kind of reformed uh, understanding of worship is we don't get to make anything up. We'll just do what God says and, and not be creative. This isn't the place for creativity. It's the place for obedience. And within the framework of obedience, maybe there's creativity, but not making it up as we worship God. A little far any, any other questions or thoughts on the Deuteronomy 4? Yeah. Where do the Ten Commandments written in stone fall into what? Okay. Um, good question. So, 
Totally, yeah. It's, I mean, you got, you, got the t- you got the two tablets of stone written by, as it were, the very finger of God. Right? God wrote this. Moses carried it down. God wrote them. Um, so it would be easy enough, uh, just like the rest of us, to say, well, that's, that makes it extra special, right? And shouldn't we have a special like, place in our worship and heart for those particular stones? Um, we, can, we can do that with anything, right? The grave, the grave of someone that we love who's passed on, it's a special spot. We you know, attribute significance to it and so on. Um, so there, there's a way in which humans, I think, are apt to make idols out of those things. It seems that one way that God handled that in particular with the Ten Commandments is those tablets of stone got stuck in the ark. And that ark got stuck in the Holy of Holies. And you're not going in there. Right? Um, so he's kind of segreg- segregated them from the general population of Israel. But they know they're there. Right? But they're not going to bow down and worship them specifically. Um, so that's a, it's a good question. So what about, and, and we just take it as a general question, what about special stuff? What about spiritual special stuff? What about this book? This is the Bible, right? It's just the Word of God. Amen. Can I ever throw it away? What if the binding breaks? Have you guys ever thrown away a Bible? Do you feel terrible? Because <laughs> it's, it's a holy book, right? And you think, oh, it's a good Protestant, it's just a book. Well, let the Lord be the Lord, it's just a book. Well, it doesn't quite work that way, does it? It's a special book. But it's not a book we're going to worship. We're not going to bow down and worship this book, though we are going to receive it as the Word of God and recognize that it's a created medium by which God ministers himself to us. And it might be special to us, but it's not holy in the sense that God said, preserve this and do this. Right. Anyway, we have these kind of levels of holiness that we kind of build into things. Um, and the way you're talking about the Ten Commandments kind of hinges in that, where there are things that are holy that are set apart, and we think, well, this is special. Right? This is a special thing, and we shouldn't tr- treat it as common, which really ties into the, uh, the commandment of um, not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? So I think that's a good question to me that opens up a whole can of worms. It's hard to figure out which worm's which um, when it comes in. I'm not prepared to do it this morning anyway, but that's a good question. Yes? Uh, it's interesting when the 70 elders go up with Moses. And, you know, it says that they saw God. But then right after that, like, they give a description of just the ground. Like, it's blue. I like this is a big detailed description of, like, not God. But like, on the ground, like they almost didn't even lift their eyes up. Yeah, right. That's it. That's what we're yeah. staring at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, we're not looking. He's over there, but look at this ground. It's totally. Amazing, you know? I was read a description of somebody. In fact, it was uh, oh, Mengele I was reading. But this description, this poor lady, is all, all, all I could describe is his shoes. And they were really shiny because that's all I was looking at was down. <laughs> I don't know anything up there. But that, that's what I saw. And maybe that's it when it comes to it. Let's uh, see if we can plow ahead. Number four, number four, I'll give just a really quick one, which is to say you, we could spend hours and hours and hours reading texts from the Bible about how Israel struggled in all sorts of ways with idolatry. From the very kings, which are, the, and especially the northern kings, are rife with idolatry. Right? They're punished over and over again for their idolatry. Uh, all the way to the people. Uh, household gods, like like the, the statues you were thinking of, where it said first, you know, mini statues of gods. That, those would be like household gods, and there's another word for those, which would be included in this idolatry. But um, anyway, from the, the common people having their own little superstitions and their own things that would go on, you know, as people do, uh, all the way up to the very public leadership of Israel and what's going on there, uh, to the point of setting up even in the temple to worship the stars and the sun and the moon and the heavenly bodies. We think, no, okay, well, that's in Israel. That's even in the very temple worship of Israel. We can spend hours looking through those texts. There are plenty, plenty, plenty of them. And so Israel struggled with idolatry. It's, it's a nation among nations that God says, don't make an image. And they'll say, okay, but then they do, right? They, they still struggle with it. 
Um, and and part of what brings God to drive them out of the land is their idolatry. Right? To drive them off into Assyria and then into Babylon. And the truth of the matter is when they come back from that, we don't see the same kind of idolatry. Right? It's, 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 it's a little more heavy-handed as far as the, the rulers saying, nope, none of this, get it out. Uh, you, know, you can think of maybe two kings of Judah who really did a number on the high places and the idolatrous worship. Uh, you know, they're good, they're good, the good kings. Who are they? There's one of them. There's another good king that did just the same thing. What was it? Hezekiah. I think it is. Anyway, you guys should know this. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we, have two, we have two kings of Judah who are really renowned for bringing the worship of Yahweh, in, you know, clearing out and, and all the idolatry, but it's shot through. It shot through Israel's uh, worship and, and, and uh, daily, weekly existence. When they come back from captivity, not so much. Right? It, it, they kind of land differently at that point. Um, they still have idolatry. And obviously, by the very end, when Christ comes to Israel, they're, they're full of idolatry, not because of the statues that they're bowing down to, but the idols of their very own hearts and of the land itself and of the people and these other things. Right? Uh, but they had, they had, by and large, pushed the, the idol worship out of Israel. So with that, which is a problem for many centuries, kind of by that discipline, really, of, of going off in exile and coming back, is something that Israel seems to have had a little, at least a little bit of progress in as they come back. Um, which moves me to number five, the, the kind of setting the stage for the new covenant, right? The, the, what's going on in Jesus' day and Paul's day, uh, not just this long look at uh, the history of Israel, and I'll get into that next week. Yeah, Vicki? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm not going to take that on now. Uh, so the question is a good one, which is, okay, well, you have this commandment not to worship God through graven images. So how is it that within the church of Jesus Christ, whether in the east or the west, both, um, that this goes on in different ways? And what's the rationale? How does the church think about this? Um, and that's a good question. Some of it has to do with linking the first and second commandment um, and then breaking up the tenth commandment into two. Right, so that the first commandment really, anyway, there's something there. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave that one and say we'll, we'll pick it up another time uh, when it comes down to Christian idolatry and the Christian problems in the church um, dealing with idols and images and stuff like that. Um, but it does grow out of the, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, that the, the, the new covenant body of Christ is coming up in and, and, uh, and fighting against, right, protesting against as well. Um, I'll mention this last note down there, I think it's fun. Um, in our time, the way we kind of think of things, that which is new is right. That which is new is correct. Right? The latest study on is the truth. Until the next one comes out, then that one's old. Right? Do you get that? Okay, that's how we work. <laughs> that's simple. That's how we work. As modern people, the most modern, the most up-to-date, the, most, uh, the, the newest is like what we, what we value. The ancient, eh, not so much. And in that sense, we're sons of the Enlightenment. Okay, the Enlightenment said, all that ancient wisdom, forget about it. You don't need it. You don't need the Bible. You don't need Aristotle. You don't need any of it. Um, we got our minds. We have our, 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 our reason. Let's do it right now. Right? So there's that kind of like immediacy of knowledge and wisdom. But then I think it grows in the modern world into something weird that we're dealing with where unless it's like brand new, it's totally not right. 
anything old is, is wrong, in that sense. Well, the Romans, of course, and the whole rest of the world, all through history, is just the opposite. Right? That which is ancient is clearly more valuable than that which is new. That which is new is confusing and probably wrong. Just put it down to that. If it's new, it's probably wrong, and it's definitely confusing, and it's unsettling to these traditions that have gone on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Right? There's that stability in the ancient world, and really all through the world, until the modern world, of looking back and seeing that stability. And um, new things are distrusted. Something new is, is, is definitely worth uh, having all kinds of doubt about. Which I, and so, um, when, when Rome... When Israel comes into the parameters of Rome under Pompey, 63 B.C., they're looking and they kind of like say, hey, this whole like, cult of Yahweh, this, this, uh, this worship of the Israelites goes way back. And they like that. They say, hey, this is a, this is a neat thing. They like that. Um, and so, the, the, therefore, Israel is kind of brought into the pantheon, the Roman pantheon. It's part of one of the gods that's rightly worshipped. Not a newbie, but an ancient one that we really like. Um, but I offer the reality that emperor worship in the first century, was pretty new. In that the emperor was pretty new. Right? So it's interesting how there's this distrust of novelty, yet at the same time there's an embrace of it by Rome, um, and we're just the same, you know, maybe just the opposite, though, when it comes down to we distrust anything old, though sometimes we, we, we can find some wisdom there as well. Um, but anyway, uh, so one of the, the reasons I mentioned emperor worship is that's one of the major forms of idolatry the church has to deal with, is the worship of the emperor. And city to city, all through the Roman Empire. That's a newer form of idolatry, even though there's, you know, thinking of your leaders as divine goes back way, to, you know, way far too. But having an emperor in Rome is a relatively new thing. Um, and so to worship that emperor is a relatively new religious exercise. And, uh, and generally Romans didn't like that novelty, but in this case it served them well. Uh, and hurt the Christians as well, so they had to fight against it. Anyway, that was for free. I thought it was kind of fun. So let's, uh, unless there's a question on your head, or in your head there. All right, let's wrap it up, and we'll, we'll pick it up next week and, and uh, make a little more headway, maybe a little more focus, too.